Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds had gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Uh, Just a lighthearted passage this morning for you. Chicken soup for the soul, right? Uh, Man, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, if you're new to Frontline, uh, man, I want to say, as I reflect back on my own life and my own story, so much of the uh, painful things in my life, I can actually point and, and contribute, or I can point back to the church and say there are these stories or things that happened that just were really hard for me and caused a lot of wounding and a lot of questions about the nature of the church and why should I be a part of this? And you know, you can fill in the rest for yourselves. But also, as I reflect back, some of the most powerful, profound life-changing moments have happened through the local church. So I just want to throw that out there to say we are a mixed bag, and uh, we're glad that you're here. And man, I know that you're probably coming in with a lot of questions and a lot of different things going on, and we just want to say welcome to you. We know what it's like to be new or be returning back to church after being gone for a while, to have some hurts or things that need to be worked through, and we're, we're really glad that you're here. So thanks for being with us today. I also want to just say we're 27 weeks into a series on the Gospel of Mark. It's a story about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his teachings. And in this story, like we've been working our way through for 27 weeks, section by section, and why we like to do that as pastors is because there are times where you arrive at a text of Scripture that I would not just choose to preach on a Sunday. It's not like, hey, what sounds good today? Let's talk about divorce Uh, That really is not really what's happening. What's happening is we just arrived at this text, and what we have in front of us, we have to deal with, like we've been dealing with all the other texts. And so, as we read that together, I just know that in the room, it brings up a lot. We have people in our church that are coming in from all different backgrounds. We have people in our church that are married, and they're happy. Uh, We have people who are married, and they're very unhappy. We have people who are single. They've chosen to be single Uh, some, they're happy about that. We have some people in our church that are single and very unhappy about that. We have people that either are going through a divorce or have been divorced in their past, people that have been remarried, mixed marriages. I mean, just fill in the blank, like everything on, on the spectrum we have in this church. And I know that as we read that text, there's stuff that can bubble up into your head and into your heart and emotions and feelings. So look at me and and hear me. What Paul the Apostle says to his churches when he writes to almost every church, I want to say to you as one of the pastors here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We are glad that you're here. God today is not trying to highlight your shame to make it worse. He's not trying to push you out. He's not trying to condemn you that the Father is actually coming to you today and he's aiming his grace at you, he's aiming his affection at you, and he's aiming his peace at you. So if anything, all those things that you're carrying today, you don't need to check him in at the door and just pretend that everything's fine. He wants to love you today. He wants to meet you today. 
And, and I know that a talk like today is not gonna answer all of your questions. In fact, it's probably gonna create even more questions. So here's how I want you to think of it. I want you to think of it less like a roadmap to steal from our, my friend Bob Thune from Quorum Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. They talked about this topic and one of the things he said is don't think about it like a roadmap or a GPS that's like turn left in a thousand feet. This is more like a compass that's gonna show us the heart of God in marriage and on divorce. And so to that end, what I wanna do is I wanna take a second and pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for the ones in the room that are carrying all kinds of things that uh, is hard or difficult or confusing. God, all the longings in the room, I think about all my single friends, so many single friends in the room today that have longings and dreams and hopes. Would you meet them with your mercy today and your love today? Thank you that you love and value singleness God, you, you, you add beauty and significance to that calling. God, thank you for the married couples in the room. God, the ones that are married today and just full of life and joy, we bless that and we say thank you for that. The ones that are married today, and quite frankly, there's just a lot of darkness and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of confusion. Thank you that there's no amount of hardship, there's no amount of woundedness that you cannot repair. And I pray for soft hearts You've been teaching us this whole time. You've been forming us as disciples this whole time. I pray today would be no different. Form us and shape us. And for my friends that are trying to figure out what they believe about Christianity, what they believe about your church, what they believe about you, meet them in their doubts. Help them. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this month, Vogue magazine did an interview with Adele. And it was primarily about her new album, but it was more than that. It was about her life, where she's at these days, kind of what COVID was like for her. And, and during this interview, her uh, recent divorce came up. And here's what she said in the interview. She said, I was just going through the motions and I wasn't happy. Neither of us did anything wrong. Neither of us hurt each other or anything like that. It was just, I want my son to see me really love and be loved. It's really important to me I've been on my journey to find my true happiness ever since. Now, I don't, I don't share that quote with you from Adele to throw her under the bus at all. I actually share it with you because I think that what she's saying is profoundly helpful for understanding marriage in our current cultural moment. That there's been this seismic shift in our understanding of marriage as a culture. And what I want you to understand is that this shift over the last 50, 60 years is not just something that's happened outside of the walls of the church, but has also happened inside of the church. That whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, in a basic sense, our view of marriage is very similar. We probably have more similarities now as a context and culture, both in the church and outside of the church, than ever before. That's not necessarily a good thing, but I do think it's a true statement to say. That people in the church have a view of marriage that's shifted along with culture's view. So here's historically how marriage was kind of seen. It was seen as a framework where two people could come into a relationship that was marked by covenant and safety and unconditional love. And within this framework, it was going to be a deal where uh, actually over time, you would be matured into a deeper, more profound human being. That over time, there would be virtue that is given to you through staying power. That over time, you would actually subjugate your own personal wants and needs and desires for the benefit of the marriage relationship. And what's happened over time in that framework where kids would be grown up inside of that type of context, what's happened over time is it shifted from being about marriage as kind of the, 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 the focus of the relationship to being about me as the focus of the relationship. And this seismic shift uh, really is almost like this combination, imagine, of three things coming together. You have self-fulfillment and romantic idealism and consumerism somehow getting interwoven and mashed together to create what many of us in this room and outside of this room think of when we think of marriage. Tara Parker Pope wrote an article for the New York Times and she's defending this type of view of marriage, the shift. She's actually saying that this is a good thing that we've shifted as a culture. Uh, and the title of this was The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. Just listen to how she describes it. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution 
and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. Therefore, marriage used to be about us, but now it is about me. This is the place that we find ourselves. This is the place that you and I have kind of been brought up in, is this context where marriage is primarily about my own personal happiness and my own fulfillment and my own longings and my own desires. And so because that is true in our minds, what I need to find is someone who's not going to change me or someone who's not going to hinder me or get in my way or restrict me in any way from fulfilling my own hopes and dreams and desires. And if I can find that, and and by the way, the the sexual chemistry and romance needs to be off the charts amazing too. And and, and when those start to decline, or if if I discover in my marriage that those things are not there, then I'm out because marriage is ultimately about me. So this is the place that you and I find ourselves. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. That's where we find ourselves, but what Jesus is going to be doing today and what he's been doing throughout the gospel of Mark is showing up to people who want to follow him, and he's coming to us and he's saying, hey, here's your vision of the good life. Here's your vision of fill in the blank. Here's your vision today of marriage, and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to totally deconstruct it. He wants to reconstruct something far more beautiful, far more incredible, far more amazing, and then invite us into that. And what Jesus is doing again and again and again in the gospel of Mark is he, he's showing up and he's just changing the way that we think about all sorts of things. He's changing the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to the world, even the way we relate to him. And today he's going to go to the deepest level and he wants to change the way that we relate to one another in the context of marriage. Just think about stuff that Jesus has said thus far in the gospel of Mark. Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's countercultural. That's counterintuitive. Jesus says, oh, you want to follow me? You want to find life? Take up your cross, this instrument of torture and cultural shame and death. Get behind me and come after me. Mark 9, 35, we looked at this last week. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be what? He must be last of all and the servant of all. You want to be great in the kingdom? Go low. You want to be served? Actually, you can't. You got to serve all in your life. You want to become something important? Make yourself the servant of everybody else in your world. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We want to view ourselves as autonomous individuals that get to live and do however we please. And yet Jesus Jesus shows up and he says, you belong to a community and how you live affects those around you. It would be far better for you to die in the ocean than to cause someone else in your community to stumble into sin. Like Jesus changes everything about our approach and about how we think and about how we live. And today he wants to go all the way down to the depths of our most intimate relationships. And today specifically, he's talking about marriage. So what would he say to a me marriage culture? Well, let's jump in and look. Mark 10 verse one. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. I, I want to pause right there for just a minute. I love that it says, as was his custom, he taught them. Uh, one of the things that I've said again and again, and you've got to get this, is that Jesus is not just our Savior, but he is also our teacher. He, he's not less than our Savior. He, he came to save us from our sins. But please don't think of Jesus as just showing up, dying on a cross, rising from the dead, and then peacing out and be like, I got your sin stuff settled. Now we're good, right? Actually, what he did for three years of ministry is he walked around and he was known as a rabbi, as a teacher. People came to him to hear him teach. Jesus is a savior, but he's also a savior that doesn't just save us from something. He saves us into an entirely new way of relating to this world and functioning as human beings, giving us a beautiful vision for life in this world, how to live, how to relate to him and relate to one another. So Jesus is a teacher. 
With that in mind, what is he going to teach? Well, look at verse 2. And the Pharisees, or the religious leaders at that time, they came up in, in order to test him. That word test can also be translated trap, in order to trap him. Some of your translations will actually read it that way. In order to test or trap him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this idea of them testing Jesus or trapping Jesus is a little bit confusing because there's a lot about this context that we don't understand. So here are the traps that they're laying for Jesus. There's two specifically that they're laying down for Jesus. The first is a political trap. Uh, If you remember what it just said in verse one, Jesus is in Judea and he's in the surrounding region beyond the Jordan. And this region, this area was governed by a guy named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas had kind of governance and reign and rule over this region. And if you remember earlier in this gospel, we talked about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was uh, arrested and then eventually killed. He was executed by Herod Antipas for the sole fact of preaching against Herod's divorce of his ex-wife and remarriage of his now wife, Herodias. Herodias was actually married to Herod's brother and divorced him to marry Herod. So there's all these sketchy divorces and remarriage things that have had played out with Herod and Herodias. And John the Baptist was specifically preaching against that. And that ultimately was the straw that broke the camel's back to lead to John getting arrested and then eventually John getting executed. So what are they doing here? Well, remember back in chapter three, the Pharisees had already decided that they wanted Jesus killed. They're already plotting ways to get rid of Jesus. So this, in their minds, like, oh, he's passed into this region. Let's set a trap for him. Maybe he'll politically say something to screw up and it'll offend Herod. Worst case scenario, he gets arrested. Best case scenario, he gets executed. That's the first trap, political trap. The second trap was more of a cultural trap. And here's why this matters. About 100 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, there was this big debate that unfolded around Uh, divorce and remarriage. And this idea of divorce was hotly debated, but one prominent rabbi, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel, who was kind of the leading rabbi of his day, Rabbi Hillel went to an obscure passage, Deuteronomy 24, and made a case for what was basically known as no-fault divorce or getting divorced for any reason. And he, he significantly twisted this text of scripture to mean something it doesn't mean. And he basically said something like this. Hey, if you're married, then if you find something in your spouse that you don't like, or if something about them is just not sitting well with you, you can leave them for basically any reason and get married to somebody else. Now, this is primarily uh, meant to be to the benefit of men in this culture and to the detriment of women because women had a lot harder time actually processing legal divorce at the time. And so what was happening is all these men began to take advantage of their spouses and basically for any reason they could leave their wife. So they were saying like, oh, well, she's no longer attractive. I'm gonna divorce her and I'll hand her a certificate of divorce and then I'm out. Or oh, we just didn't get along anymore. So I'll hand her a certificate of divorce and then God's good with that, I'm out. Or she burned the toast And I'm out on that, so I'm going to go find another spouse. And this became the primary dominant view of divorce that played out in Jesus's context, not unlike the way that we see marriage today is kind of a contract that can be easily broken if need be. So this is the trap. They're trying to, basically in our modern culture today, they're trying to get Jesus canceled. You know what I mean? Maybe he'll say something that people are like, oh, I'm out on that. Let's tweet all about that. And like, well, let's cancel Jesus because he's just said something that's very unpopular. That's what they're trying to do. Mark 10, verse three, look at Jesus's response. I love this because they're asking him a question and what he does so often is he answers their question with what? Another question, brilliant by Jesus. Here's what he says. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now this is brilliant by Jesus and shocking by the Pharisees. Here's why. Jesus is brilliantly asking these people, hey, 
hey, I, I don't want to just answer your question with an answer. I want to answer it with another question. And I want to put myself in the same position as Moses. What did Moses command you? The Pharisees and Jesus both believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. So they could have gone to anywhere in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They could have gone to any of those passages that talk about God's heart and vision and intention behind marriage and answer Jesus's question about what Moses commanded them. And yet where they go is almost ironic. It's sad they go to this obscure text in Deuteronomy 24 that is not God's vision or heart or intention about marriage whatsoever. It's basically a text that describes what you do when marriage gets to the brink of disaster. When a marriage has experienced an adulterous relationship, one spouse has been unfaithful on the other spouse, what do you do and how do you process and mitigate divorce in such a way that it actually diminishes the fallout and the brokenness and the dysfunction? That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about. And it was primarily about God trying to protect women so that those women who are getting divorced could have a certificate that would legally allow them to remarry so that that way their children and and them as, as women in that context would not be as vulnerable and would be able to still thrive and survive in that society. And yet the Pharisees go there to say, here's what Moses commanded, right? Like this is a concession of scripture, not an intention. This isn't giving God's intention and his heart behind marriage. This is saying what to do when things fall apart. James Edwards says this about the attitude of the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees' attitude reminds us of a person who has just been granted a bank loan and then asks under what conditions he might be absolved from repaying it. That's what they're doing. They go to a weird spot. So Jesus, he says, yeah, that's true. Moses allowed that because of your hardness of heart. But he says this, look at verse six. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You might recognize that. Do you know what Jesus is quoting from right now? He goes to another thing that Moses wrote, Genesis chapter two, the very first marriage that we ever see in scripture that gives God's vision and intention and heart behind marriage. He goes to Genesis 2. They go to Deuteronomy in some obscure text. Here's what he says, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Two things today. Number one, Jesus' vision for marriage. Jesus' vision for marriage. And dealing with the Pharisees in this interaction, what we're getting is both the broken, distorted heart of the Pharisees, but we're also getting the beautiful heart of Jesus and his intention and vision behind marriage. Two things I want you to see about marriage. There's a lot of things we could say, but two things that I think show up in this text and in the Gospel of Mark. The first is marriage as a covenant. Marriage as a covenant. It's really easy to miss this But Jesus is quoting from Genesis 2, and in Genesis 2, that is loaded with covenantal language. An ancient Israelite reading Genesis 2 would have easily picked it out that there's tons of covenantal language being brought into this story. What we see in Genesis 2 is God the Father actually as the officiator and the witness of the very first wedding. He shows up and he brings the woman to the man and he officiates the very first wedding, but he's also the witness of a legally binding covenant that was playing out. And that language of two becoming one flesh is highly covenantal. It was another way, like in our society, we might say, you and I are bound together as one until death. Let us not be separated. So what is a covenant? Because a covenant's not like a word that we throw out in our context very often. Tim Keller defines it this way an incredible, unbelievable, counterintuitive merger of love and law. Love and law. What does that mean? Well, marriage is more than just feelings of love and romantic affection and desire that drive two people together in this context of marriage. It's so much more than that, but actually what's happening in marriage is that your love and your affection 
get to a place where it translates into let's make a law together. Let's make a covenant together that even when these feelings and affections of love have dissipated or have declined at times or they ebb or they flow, you and I are saying our keys are on the table and I'm not going anywhere. It's merge of love and law. It's your love arrives to a depth of maturity where you say, I'm saying no to all others and yes to you. And actually, even in the place of sickness or health, uh, even in the place of wealth or when we're in poverty, even in the place when things are going well or they're going poorly, till death do us part. And this is why I love the statement from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I've come back to this again and again, my wife and I do in our own marriage He says, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, it's the marriage that sustains your love. Do you see the difference there? In our culture, what's happening is it's your love that sustains the marriage, but the vision that Jesus has for marriage is it's actually the marriage itself that sustains your affection. I'm going to treat you loving right now. I'm going to be loving towards you. I'm going to respond sacrificially. I'm going to offer you my heart and my life and my emotions and my affections, not because I necessarily feel like it all the time, but because it's our marriage, this covenant that we made, this merger of love and law that's sustaining our own love and affection together. That's what Jesus is getting after. Now, some of you, when you hear that, uh, maybe especially if you're single, hoping to get married, you might hear this idea of this merger of love and law, and that might sound like boring and dry and forced to you. Well, I don't want my spouse to love me because they said they would. That sounds forced, and I want it to be like just always romantic and always, but, but here's what I want you to see, is when you're in marketing and promotion, do you know what I mean by that? You always have to put your best foot forward for fear of either getting swiped right or left. I have to do certain things. I have to put my best foot forward. You can't ever see me with my hair down or smell my morning breath or see me without my makeup on. I don't wear makeup. You get the point, right? Like you, you, you don't ever have to, like what you have to do is just present a form of you that's you're at your best all the time. You can't ever truly drop down into your heart and be who you really are. But when Hillary stood before me on her wedding day and she made a covenant to me, it's like over time I have been able to learn more and more that, hey, on my good days and my bad, on the days where I wake up and things are like firing on all cylinders in our marriage and on days where it's really hard and we feel like we're fighting and missing each other and ships passing in the night on days where things are beautiful and I'm so glad I'm married, on days where it's like there, there literally must be any other option than this, right? And, 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 and every married couple that's been married for more than like three weeks knows what I'm talking about. You get to that place where you're like, how do we do this? And what's so beautiful is knowing that she, on her wedding day, she put the keys on the table and she said, for better or for worse. In sickness or in health, richer or poor, till death do us part. Now I'm free to really be who I am and experience love and affection in that place. How beautiful is that? This is God's vision and intention behind marriage. Another thing I want you to see about marriage is not just that it's a covenant, but it's also an icon. Marriage is an icon. And that's a weird word, but what I mean is it's painting a picture. It's demonstrating something bigger and more beautiful than the marriage itself. And this is really fascinating, not in this text, but in the gospel of Mark and other gospel accounts, Jesus will refer to himself as the groom and his church as the bride. God in the Old Testament can refer to himself as the groom, often the groom who finds himself married to an unfaithful bride, and the people of God, is they are his bride. And so what's being played out here in marriage is something so much bigger and so much more powerful than just one man and one woman falling in love and getting married. It's bigger than that, and it almost is so much bigger that it has very little to do with that. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, ultimately, the whole point of marriage is that it's painting us a a picture of the way that God feels about his people. It wasn't like God saw a man fall in love with a woman, and he thought, that really captures my affection. That really explains how I feel about my people. No, no, no. Remember, he created the institution of marriage 
to be a picture of what he was trying to communicate about his unconditional, self-giving, sacrificial love for his people. He actually created it to play out as this picture and the implication of his unconditional, self-giving, sacrificial love it absolutely has to change the way that you and I see love as a definition. Our culture tells us this about love. Love someone only if you have a guarantee that you will be loved equally in return. Love someone only if certain conditions are met. Love someone only if it's convenient and comfortable for you to do so. Love someone in order to manipulate them to do for you whatever it is that you want done. Love someone in order to deepen your own self-esteem or to satisfy your own desires and longings. Finally, culture says this, love someone for the time being so long as it feels right, so long as it doesn't interfere with your plans for your life. And if it does, then just bounce. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a contract. You can break it. The gospel tells us something very different about love. Jesus loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were betraying him. On the cross, Jesus made the decision to stay when he could have left. Jesus on the cross did not demand that you and I suffer for our countless sins. He didn't take our shame and our failures, throw it back in our face. Do you know a statement Jesus never said in the Gospels? You always do fill in the blank. You never do fill in the blank. What Jesus did on the cross is he absorbed our failures in his own body on the tree. He struggled and suffered under the pain of our death that we should have died. Jesus loved us to the point of giving himself for us. That is the definition of love, not what culture tells you love is, what Jesus defines love to be. And love in marriage, marriage itself is not just a covenant, it's an icon to point people to that picture. So even on the hard days, even on the days where it doesn't make sense, even on the days where there's a lot of self-giving going on, It's a demonstration of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Covenant plus icon equals Jesus' teaching here. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So if you want to know his heart on marriage, that's the heart of Jesus in a nutshell on marriage. Now, some of you are sitting here going, yeah, 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 but what about divorce? What about divorce? I mean, some of you are asking because you've been divorced. Some of you are asking because you're going through one. Some of you are asking because you're like, I kind of want one. Like, like, what do we do right now about divorce? Well, here's what Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. I love this. The disciples are like, okay, Jesus, we've, we've gotten a lot wrong so far. And we've thought that you said a few things that you didn't say. And we've definitely misunderstood a few of your stories. Please, for the love, tell me we're, we're misunderstanding you here about marriage. Even this is hard for the disciples to receive about marriage. We don't think of them as married men, but Peter, we know for a fact, was married. Most of the disciples were probably married. So they're sitting here going, wait, are you, are you telling me that Rabbi Hillel was wrong and that we can't just like divorce for any reason if, if it doesn't work out? Like, are you, are you really telling us that, that this is till death do us part? This is a hard teaching, even for disciples of Jesus. Verse 11, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the second and last thing I want you to see is Jesus' teaching on divorce. Now what in the world is Jesus saying here? Because he's kind of saying, if you divorce someone and marry someone else, you're making your, your former spouse the victim of adultery. What does he mean by that? What's the connection between divorce and remarriage and adultery? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. And remember the context to which he's speaking to. This is a context that had a no-fault divorce as a policy. You could leave for any reason. So what was happening left and right, men were getting tired of their wives, finding them less attractive, finding them less interesting, whatever the case might, may be. And they were leaving, divorcing her, giving her a certificate, then going to find another wife that they thought might satisfy the ache of their soul. And what Jesus is saying is the same heart posture that leads someone in marriage to commit adultery is not unlike the same heart posture that plays out when you divorce your spouse to go find somebody else to marry. It's like long form adultery is what Jesus is saying. Think about adultery uh, and the steps that, that happen to unfold towards adultery. Like no married person just winds up in bed randomly with another person like the next morning. It doesn't, you don't just bump into somebody and that's what happens. There's steps 
that are playing out. So think about the steps of adultery. Number one, there's a vacuum of intimacy. Both with God and with your spouse, there begins this separation of of intimacy and, and you start to feel that vacuum. Number two, there's a subtle lie that you start to believe in the back of your head. I married the wrong person or I could have done better. Had I held out longer, I could have done better. Those are lies, but we start to believe those lies. Then number three, there's the fantasy that begins to play out where you meet someone that you find interesting or attractive or funny or they find you interesting interesting and attractive and funny and you start to compare your spouse with them and you start to kind of wish that your spouse had certain characteristics that they don't have and kind of project onto them things that you wanted your spouse to have. You start to enjoy their company, so then it leads next to the intentional encounter where you start to try to find excuses to be around that person. You try to bump into them at work, or you try to you know, position yourself to be closer to them. You, you get excited when you realize that you're going to come in contact with that person later in the day. You begin to flirt with them, look for excuses to talk to them. That eventually leads to the verbal expression where you open up about your own vacuum of intimacy in your marriage, the longings that you have, how this person might even fulfill. You begin to say things to this person that should be reserved only for your spouse. And then this eventually leads to physically acting out. And we watch that play out. We've seen that play out again and again. And what Jesus is trying to say is the same heart posture that leads a person to adultery is the same heart posture that leads someone to basically grab their keys off the table and say, I'm out on this marriage. I'm gonna go find somebody else that I think will satisfy me. He's saying, if you do this, it is adultery. So this is Jesus's teaching on divorce. If you wanna kind of sum it all up, I think it's best summed up by this quote from Andrew Nacelli. The main thing that Jesus wants to say about divorce is this, don't do it. It's not God's intention for marriage. The Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for divorce. Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. They want to talk about when a marriage can be broken. He wants to talk about why marriages shouldn't be broken. And if all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. Whatever exceptions there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. It's a covenant, it's an icon, and this is the heart of God coming through on this topic. Now, I wanna address one more question I think is bubbling to the surface. Is divorce ever permissible? Like, I hear you on God's intention for marriage, but is divorce ever permissible? Well, Jesus is both fully aware and sober about the dysfunction and the brokenness that exists both in our world and in our own hearts So he's not unrealistic. He's not looking at this with a pie-in-the-sky vision. Jesus knows that you and I live in a sinful world, and often we sin and hurt one another in profound ways. And Mark 9, though it's powerful and though it's beautiful and though we must submit ourselves to Jesus' teaching here in Mark 9, is not the only thing that Jesus had to say about marriage and about divorce. Both in church history and in Scripture, the elders of Frontline Church can see at least three different times when divorce might be permissible. Never mandated, never commanded or required, but might be biblically permissible. So let me give you the three that I believe and we believe are permissible grounds for a divorce. Number one, adultery. We get this from Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. In that text, it's the same story, but Matthew adds an exclusion clause uh, that says basically like, but if someone is sexually unfaithful to their spouse. And so what we would say is if you've been the victim of sexual unfaithfulness in your marriage, that doesn't require that you leave, but it does give you a biblically permissible option to pursue divorce. Number two, abandonment. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 through 16. And what's happening in this story is it's basically an unbeliever who just abandons their spouse altogether and doesn't want to stay married. We've seen this play out in all sorts of ways where a husband will literally leave town, leave, the, leave his wife, leave their kids, take money out of the bank account and just bail from the marriage. We would say that's a heartbreaking situation and biblically you, you have the option. It's permissible to get a divorce. Though again, it's not required. And then finally, number three, abuse. And abuse here 
is there's no specific text that we would take you to in scripture. We would follow the same logic as abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter seven because abandonment is an extreme, or I'm sorry, abuse is an extreme form of an abandonment where you actually refuse to be physically present to love and care for and bless and provide. And instead there's presence of violence and presence of evil. And that, in our opinion, is a biblically permissible grounds for divorce. Now, when I say abuse, I know that in our culture, we've kind of whitewashed everything to be abuse. Not everything is abuse. And I think you need to really wrestle with your definition of what abuse is because, friends, there really is real abuse out there. And to call someone being a jerk to you abuse is unfair to victims of abuse. There really is sexual abuse out there. There really is financial and physical abuse out there. To define everything as abuse is not healthy or helpful for those who have actually experienced abuse. So let's decide in community what is and is not abuse, right? These are the three grounds for divorce that we see. So what does that leave for us as followers of Jesus? Let me just say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're kind of in the place where you get to wrestle with, is Jesus onto something or not? Is his way better or not? Is he offering good news here or not? And we believe he is. And so as followers of Jesus who are putting ourselves underneath his authority, following behind him, here's some parameters, some guiding principles. Again, the compass analogy is helpful. This is, this is north for you and I as followers of Jesus. Number one, if you're married, reconcil- reconciliation whenever possible. Reconciliation whenever possible. Number two, repentance for where I have sinned. Number three, forgiveness for my spouse. As a follower of Jesus, you do not get the option to not do those three things. You must seek reconciliation whenever possible. You must repent for where you have sinned and you must forgive your spouse. That doesn't mean that, listen, you might do those three things and your marriage still may fail. It might still end divorce but you don't get the option to not do those three things. This is north for you and I as followers of Jesus. Again, compass, not a roadmap. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna close out real quickly with just some rapid fire Q&A questions that might be going through your mind and then we'll close out and be done. Um, These are just to start more conversation because I know a topic like this can create more questions than it can answer. Number one, is divorce the unforgivable sin? Look at me, no, it's not. The only unforgivable sin that exists is living a life of rejection and lack of faith in Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus till death, that is the unforgivable sin. If you're here today and you've been divorced, you've gone through the pain of that, I want you to know you're not walking in with a scarlet red letter on your head. No one's looking at you in a judgmental fashion. No one's rolling their eyes at like, listen, this is a place where you can be loved and experience healing, and hopefully experience grace and forgiveness and help. We love you. We are glad that you're here. Today, if you feel an overwhelming amount of shame because of your past divorce, I think maybe the thing that God wants to do most in you today is to allow you to lift your head, not in arrogance, but knowing that Jesus has covered your shame through his death and his resurrection. You're not primarily identified as someone who's been divorced. You're a forgiven deeply loved daughter or son. You need to hold your identity as a daughter or a son. So it's not the unforgivable sin. Number two, how do I deal with the pain and betrayal of my spouse's adultery? The first thing that we would say is we are really sorry. As pastors, we are walking with people on on frequent basis who have gone through the pain of sexual infidelity in their marriage or adultery. And I don't physically know what that must feel like emotionally feel like to carry the weight of that. Many people do, but here's something that I think you need to know. God himself knows what it's like. I mean, read Hosea, read Jeremiah 3. God himself describes himself as someone who has been on the receiving end of infidelity and unfaithfulness from the people that he has offered his affection and heart to again and again. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to have someone turn away from him to something or someone else. He knows the pain of that. And I think he wants to sit with you and weep with those who weep. I wanna say to you as well that loving someone is not the same as trusting them. There's no command in scripture that says trust all people. In fact, I think you're a fool. A a fool trusts no one and a fool trusts everyone, right? 
Uh, love everybody, but you don't have to trust them. Trust is earned over time and over character and over faithfulness. And so if trust has been destroyed, it's gonna take some time for that trust to be rebuilt, maybe years. That's okay. Seek out healthy gospel community. Find good professional counseling. Let us walk you through it. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you guys with this, but fill in the blank. Hey, can I just say, you're not a bother to your pastors. Like, we knew what we were signing up for when we decided to be pastors. At least, well, let me refer. I had no idea what I was signing up for, but at least I knew that was a part of it, right? That was a part of what I signed up for. You are never a bother to us. We love you. This is a joy to be your pastors. When your life falls apart, we want to be there. We want to be with you. You're never gonna bother us. Please reach out. Number three, my marriage is in a bad spot. What do I do? Call your pastors, tell your community group leader, get professional help. Hey, uh, to quote Ted Lasso, I know that in the Midwest, uh, we all have a, a modern, you know, skepticism of counseling with a, you know, we, that's just the way we approach it. The way that he approached counseling, that's the way that we often approach counseling. Will you please stop being that way about counseling? Yeah. Counseling is good. I go to counseling, and it's really almost saved my life. My wife goes. We go for our marriage. Uh, If you go to get an oil check and think that's a good idea, you should also go to marriage counseling because it doesn't mean your life is on the rocks. It doesn't mean things are falling apart. It just means that you're doing stuff with someone else who's a little bit wiser than you, someone who's not in your own brain, someone who doesn't have the broken, distorted family dynamics that you have that can sit with you and counsel you. Please reach out. Please get help. It's okay to not be okay. If you're married for more than like 12 seconds, you know it's hard. You know that you have good days and bad days. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to pretend it and to pretend that you're fine and to hide that from your pastors. It's not okay to hide that from your community. Please don't be the spouse that won't go to counseling when the other spouse asks you to. I can't think of a more hurtful, harmful, shameful thing to do than to refuse to go to counseling when your spouse is saying, could we please go? You love them, and even if you don't right now, it's worth it. We can help you. We can even pay for it if need be. We can find you someone who's good. We will do what we can do to help. Number four, I'm in an abusive relationship. What should I do? In this order, call the police. Tell the authorities. God placed them there to protect you. It is good. You should call the police. And number two, call your pastors in that order reach out to the police and call us. We've multiple times walked specifically women through abusive situations. We would be honored to do that. Please, please do not hear what I'm saying today about marriage and misinterpret Jesus's teaching on marriage and divorce to make you feel like you should stay locked into an abusive relationship. That is not the heart of God for you. It's not. You are valuable and worthy of safety and security, and help. And we'll work out the details about what that means for your marriage, but you need to get out. You need to get help. If you don't know what to do, come and grab one of us after the service. We'll help you. We have officers in our church who are godly men that can make the call. We'll get you safe. Number five, I've been divorced. Should I remarry? This will be the most disappointing answer of all answers. Maybe, maybe not, right? I don't know. There's so many scenarios, millions of scenarios that could be be played out. I don't know if you should get married again. I don't know your situation. So can I just invite you into a few things? Time, counsel, open Bibles, an open heart, ready to submit to whatever Jesus says, Lots of conversations with your pastors and lots of conversations with your community. I think that that's the way we've got to navigate that, okay? I'm gonna invite you. Would you stand with me? Mark ends this teaching with one of the most bizarre stories ever. And at first, you're like, Mark, you're interrupting your beautiful flow. You were talking about marriage and Jesus teaching on that and they're in the house of the disciples and that was the focus. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of kids get rushed in and parents are bringing their kids to Jesus, wanting Jesus to touch the kids. Let me just read it to you. 
And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Some of you are like, this is so weird, Mark. Why would you put that there? Mark, again, was inspired by the Holy Spirit and knew what he was doing. He's creatively writing this. And here's the whole point, that when you and I think of little children, we often think of like someone cute and adorable. And when Jesus is saying, if you're gonna enter the kingdom, you gotta be like a little child. And we think, oh, he's referring to the way that we have to have childlike faith and spontaneity and pureness and all of that. Not at all. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is not talking about like little kids. Primarily, it's talking about infants. These are moms bringing infant children to Jesus for Jesus to touch and bless them. Uh, Here's the whole point of this passage, that the cure to having a hard heart like the Pharisees is not to think that you know everything. It's not to come swaggering up to Jesus. It's to be brought to Jesus like an infant. What are infants? They're helpless can't do anything for themselves. They don't have anything to offer. And when it comes to a teaching like this, man, you feel it and I feel it. Most of Jesus's teachings, I don't walk away swaggering. I kind of walk away with my tail between my legs a little bit. Like Jesus has called me to such a high life with him and I fail so much. We're infants. Listen to this. This is true of you. It's true of me. We are not innocent and eager but slow, disbelieving, and cowardly. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They come only as they are, small and powerless without sophistication as the overlooked and disposed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clouts, no claims. Little children are paradigmatic disciples for only empty hands can be filled. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not today, what Jesus is inviting you and I to do is to come to him with empty hands. And what he wants to do to you is what he did to these kids in this text. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus wants to bless you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to help you. His body was broken for you and I in our helplessness. His blood was shed for our sins when we contributed nothing. He loves you and he's for you.